0: Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon, and it's Wednesday, June 23rd. Today, back in the day in 1961, the Antarctic Treaty System went into effect. After World War II, various world powers, including the U.S., began preparing military operations around Antarctica, the only continent without a native human population. From 1946 to 47, the U.S. conducted Operation High Jump, which shipped 4,700 soldiers to train in Antarctic conditions. Throughout the 1950s, Argentinian military forces and English forces also escalated military involvement in various islands around Antarctica. Scientific research stations were also being built by international organizations, the Soviet Union and the U.S. Between 1958 and 59, representatives from 12 countries met in Washington to discuss a treaty to negotiate the use of Antarctica. The nations agreed to a peaceful use of the continent and the freedom of scientific research. The treaty was ratified on June 23, 1961. Today, there are 54 countries signed on to the treaty. And today, back in the day in 1810, John Jacob Astor established the Pacific Fur Company. Astor was a merchant based in New York who sought to create a chain of trading posts from the Rocky Mountains to the Pacific Northwest. The company was funded entirely by Astor for $200,000, who signed the company's provisional agreement with several partners on June 23, 1810. Astor ordered a quick and massive movement of employees across the Lewis and Clark Expedition Trail and around Cape Horn to establish themselves in Oregon Country. Employees, called Astorians, would go on trapping expeditions and would exchange goods with Native Americans for furs. Astor even struck a deal with Russian colonial authorities, who were in charge of what is now Alaska, to ship furs into China, collect a massive profit, and bring Chinese goods back into the U.S. to sell. Eventually, the PFC went under due to competition with inland companies and deteriorating diplomatic relations with the U.K. By 1818, the U.K.'s Hudson Bay Company took over all fur trading in the Pacific Northwest. Today, we'll start with your quick six news headlines and we have an interview with Nicole Lewis. Project manager for the Block 14 Memorial Garden. X ray. First up, it's time for today's Quick Six Local Rundown. Portland Police Bureau is making major changes to how it handles traffic stops and searches. Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler and Portland Police Bureau Chief Chuck LaVell announced yesterday that they will make two key changes to procedures. First, they've instructed police to stop pulling drivers over for less serious, non-moving violations. Instead, they should focus on speeding, driving under the influence, and generally unsafe driving. Second, they've directed officers to inform drivers that they can decline searches. They're also requiring audio recording of consent for searches. These changes come in an attempt to address the data showing a racial disparity in arrests and traffic stops. In 2019, officers made about 33,000 stops. About a quarter of those were for non-moving violations like busted taillights. Black people made up about 23% of stops for non-moving violations compared to white people who made up 62%. According to the latest census data, black people only make up about 5% of the overall population in Portland, The data will continue to be tracked and shared in the future. Portland Commissioner Joanne Hardesty applauded the moves by saying they will, quote, advance the cause of racial justice in policing. And now your daily dose of data. As of yesterday, 68.8% of the eligible population in Oregon has received at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. Remember, once we get up to 70% statewide, COVID restrictions come off. Only 41,094 people need to get vaccinated to get us there. Washington, Hood River, Benton, and Multnomah counties are all over 70%. Lincoln County is right there at 69.1%. If you need any more more motivation, Governor Brown is offering four travel packages to different classic locations in Oregon as prizes. Each is worth about $2,000. This is on top of the million dollar lottery that's already in place. Oregon tenants still struggling to pay rent because of the pandemic may now be protected for another two months. The Oregon State Senate approved legislation yesterday that grants tenants a 60-day protection from eviction. They just need to apply for rent assistance and notify their landlords. There are millions of dollars available from the state to help renters and landlords. But the moratorium expires at the end of the month, and the state is still working its way through thousands of applications. Nearly 11,000 Oregon households have applied for more than $73 million in rent and utility assistance through the Oregon Emergency Rental Assistance Program as of June 15. Applications for the program have been open since May nineteenth. Under the new legislation, landlords who apply through the state's Landlord Compensation Fund will receive 100% of unpaid rent they are owed by tenants in exchange for forgiving the debt. Previously, landlords received only 80% of the unpaid rent and were required to forgive the remainder. The new provision would remain in effect until March 1, 2022. The bill passed 26 to 3 in the Senate after passing unanimously last week in the House. Now it just awaits signature on Governor Capron's desk. Former Multnomah County Commissioner Loretta Smith has announced her candidacy for Congress. Yesterday, Smith said she's throwing her hat in the ring for Oregon's new and yet-to-be-determined congressional district. Remember, since Oregon saw an 11% population increase over the past decade, according to the census, we get a new congressional district. Lawmakers are still trying to determine what the boundaries will be. Unlike state representatives, U.S. representatives don't have to live in the district they represent. Loretta Smith currently lives in Northeast Portland. Smith has a long history in Oregon politics. She spent over 20 years working for then-U.S. Representative Ron Wyden. Then she won a seat on the Multnomah County Board of Commissioners in 2010, representing North Portland. In 2018, she ran an unsuccessful campaign for Portland City Council against Joanne Hardesty and narrowly lost again in a runoff election in 2020 to Dan Ryan. In 2017 she faced some controversy when reports came out that Smith had bullied staff workers and misused county funds. After an investigation the claims were found to be true and she had reimbursed the county. If she wins she would be the first black representative elected from Oregon. Miss Emerald Valley Abigail Hayes has been crowned the new Miss Oregon. For the first time since 2019, the state has a new Miss Oregon. The 2020 pageant was skipped because of the pandemic. The 20-year-old Hayes from Damascus was crowned over the weekend when the hybrid virtual live pageant wrapped up in Seaside. After being selected out of 18 entrants in the preliminary interview rounds featuring red carpet and talent competitions, Hayes beat out five finalists to take the title. She's currently a student at Liberty University studying strategic, Communications, and hopes to one day work at a law firm that focuses on family and pro bono work. Soon after being crowned by Miss Oregon 2019 Shivali Kaidem, the new Miss Oregon said, quote, I'm feeling like this is a dream. I'm absolutely ecstatic and this is unreal. Unreal. And some good news. The Timbers are back in action tonight against the Houston Dynamo. Portland is in 5th place in the West with 12 points and a record of 4 wins and 4 losses. Houston's in 7th place, also with 12 points, in one more game played with a record of 3 wins, 3 losses, and 3 ties. Real Salt Lake sits between them in 6th with 12 points in 7 games. Timbers fans may remember Dynamo leading scorer Maximiliano Ruti. He chipped in 16 goals for Portland back during the legendary 2015 run to win the MLS Cup. He has five goals in his first season with Houston. On another note of familiarity, the coaches know each other pretty well, too. Giovanni Saversi and Houston's Tab Ramos played together for the New York-New Jersey Metro Stars back in the late 1990s. The Timbers topped the Dynamo 2-1 in their home opener at Providence Park back on April 24th. Tonight's match kicks off in Houston at 5.30 local time. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. At the southwest corner of Lone Fur Cemetery is an unassuming patch of dirt and grass. It's known as Block 14. Between Lone Fur's towering obelisks and ornate headstones dedicated to some of Portland's most famous historical figures, Block 14 is easy to miss. But what you might not know is that Block 14 is the final resting place for many marginalized and forgotten Portlanders. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, thousands of Chinese immigrants and inpatients at the Hawthorne Asylum were buried here in unmarked graves. Now, almost a century later, community organizers and Oregon Metro are working to memorialize the forgotten. Here to tell us more is Nicole Lewis, project manager for the Block 14 Memorial Garden.
1: Nicole, good morning. Good morning, Julia. Thanks so much for having me today. Yeah, thanks for coming on. What initially brought you to this project?
2: Great question. So I've been at Metro in the Parks and Nature Department for about six years, and I remember first hearing about Lone First Cemeteries, Block 14. Um, And right away, it just carried so much intrigue and mystery you know, both the name and location of the project mm-hmm. um, really compelled me just to learn more about it. So um, I, I feel kind of a personal connection to the site. Um, and I've built that connection over time as I've learned more about the significance of Block 14 to its history.
1: Yeah, I used to live right by Lone First Cemetery and I this is the first I've heard of Block 14. So I'm very excited to hear more. What excites you about this project?
2: Uh, well, So many things, but I think um, there's just so much community passion and enthusiasm that's driven this project over the many years. So I just really value and appreciate being a part of that. Um, But what excites me the most is, you know, helping bring greater awareness to the stories of Block 14 and the people buried there and our collective histories.
1: Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the people who are buried there. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the history of the Hawthorne Asylum? Yeah, sure. Uh,
2: So Lone Fur, as you mentioned, is home to a number of patients of what was called um, officially the Oregon Hospital for the Insane, uh, Oregon's first psychiatric hospital. And um, in 1862, just a little backstory, Dr. James Hawthorne um, was the only person to respond to the state's call Seeking qualified bidders to provide medical care for those experiencing mental health conditions. Wow. So, of course, he won the contract, right? Um, and the Oregon Hospital for the Insane, Hawthorne's Asylum, was built shortly after. Huh. Um, yeah, so from 1867 to 1879, I believe, uh, the hospital contracted with the cemetery to bury the bodies of patients that were not claimed by relatives. Um, and, you know, that being said, the locations of many of the burials from the hospital aren't noted in loan for records. Um, but we do have some strong anecdotal evidence suggesting that some of the hospital patients um, were buried along the eastern edge of Block 14.
1: Hmm. So mm-hmm. th- I think this is so interesting for just for the the sheer fact of what happened but also like I had no idea that Hawthorne was named for Dr. Hawthorne um, who was the only person to answer the call to help uh, work in the hospital so between Mm -hmm. 1891 and 1928 over a thousand Chinese immigrants were buried at Lone Fur who were these people what were their lives like
2: Great question. Um, so Oregon's earliest immigrants from China came from the southern providence or province, excuse me, um, of Guangdong. And so, to the best of our knowledge, you know, over 1,100 people of Chinese descent buried at Block 14, um, you know, came mostly from southern China. Um, you know, one line in the narrative um, for Block 14. Suggests that in 1891, a local streetcar company uh, called the Suburban Railroad Company, purchased Block 14, Mm. for the exclusive purpose of burying Chinese workers. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, so it's assumed that most of the people buried at Block 14 were physical laborers by trade. Mm -hmm. Um, But this isn't entirely known or verified. I think You know we know that women and children some women and children were buried there as well okay I would point folks to the Chinatown History Museum's permanent exhibit that shares the story of the growing and very strong Chinese merchant class at the time so you know some of those folks might be buried at Block 14 as well where is that exhibit that exhibit is at the Chinatown History Museum which is located Uh, in Old Town Chinatown.
1: Cool, all right. Mm -hmm. So just being an immigrant or a psychiatric patient didn't automatically mean that someone would be buried in Lone Fur at Block 14. What kind of circumstances uh, would lead to someone being buried in these unmarked graves? Yeah, great question.
2: So I think the answer involves a combination of laws of the time, um, of course, stigma, racism, xenophobia, uh, as well as conditions of poverty, and maybe even a person standing within their own family. Hmm. Um, So I'll share a little more on that. So looking at hospital patients first, uh, it's true that the locations of most hospital patients at Lone Fur are unknown, and nearly all, essentially all but I believe 11 of those graves are unmarked uh, to our knowledge. But prior to 1880, which was, you know, the same period when hospital patients were buried at Lone Fur, the law apparently didn't require cemeteries to keep daily daily records of burial. So so that's, you know, that's interesting. I think that's a piece of the puzzle. Um, But really, you know, we do see some fiscal records uh, for some of the hospital patients in our files. And so we know that Many were interred um, for a fee of five dollars, and that fee was standard for grave digging, but didn't provide for placement of a grave marker or headstone to locate and really, you know, honor those people. So there could um,
1: potentially be a lot more people there than we even know about. Right. I mean, so we
2: many uh, yes, many of the graves are unmarked and. Um, we're not quite sure exactly where everyone is. We know where some people are, right? But not
1: everybody. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking with Nicole Lewis from uh, Metro about Block 14, the project, memorial project in Lone Fur Cemetery. Are most of the people who were buried at Block 14 still there? Great question.
2: So, you know, most of the Chinese people once buried at Block 14 are no longer there. Um, I would say too, as far as, you know, unmarked graves with respect to members of the Chinese community at block 14, you know, some people have suggested that their graves might in fact have been marked with materials made of, you know, things like wood, which wouldn't have withstood the test Mm -hmm. of time. So, you know, there's that, but, um, on two recorded occasions, um, the folks of Chinese descent who were buried at block 14 were exhumed. uh, Once in 1928, and again, in 1948, and exhumed, fancy term for unburied, essentially, um, removed from their temporary burial location. And um, this was about Chinese tradition, per Chinese custom, they were to be returned to China, so they could be buried in their ancestral lands. So you know, fast forward, um, 1948 was the second exhumation of folks. And, you know, an important side story, I would say, is just to know that not everybody who wanted to make it home actually did. Um, documentarian Ivy Lynn uh, developed a documentary in around, I think, 2009 called Come Together Home. And she retraces the journey of the folks who were sent home in 1948, mm-hmm. and um, many of them may still be waylaid in Hong Kong, uh, which I think was an issue of customs.
1: Uh, wow! At the time. So, so, I mean, that's like what 73 years of of sitting in customs. Yes, I think they're in uh, a funeral home
2: of sorts in Hong Kong, but. It's it's not clear how many folks have been reconnected with their families or ancestors. So it's a really fascinating story. Um, yeah, I would I would recommend come to he- come together home the documentary uh, to learn more about that. Wow,
1: cool. Um, yeah, I mean I don't think it's cool, but what an interesting story. Uh, so you were working on a memorial project. What does that look like? Right. So the project
2: is really about honoring and remembering the people buried at block 14, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The journey of this project began many years ago. Um, So in 2007, or 2008, a working group of community members uh, came together to help guide a design process um, to design what some of our partners now refer to as The Block 14 Cultural Heritage and Healing Garden. So um, there's a lot of community support traditionally and you know into current day there's a lot of community voice that's helping guide and shape how we approach this project um, which I think makes it all the more valuable and I think will result in a really positive um, place and experience um, of honoring and remembering both trauma and the contributions of of all of these people. So um, there's a lot that remains to be determined as far as what the place will look like and how it will feel. But uh, in 2008, Lango Hansen Architects, the local group here in Portland, um, I believe they donated a fair amount of their time
1: personally um, to help develop a really strong foundation for what's to come. So it's going to be a memorial garden. It's going to have, um, you know, some kind of tribute to to the people buried here. It feels like history can be pretty tricky, um, because especially for the lives of society's most underrepresented underrepresented communities, like migrants or mental health patients. Um, why is it important to memorialize these invisible or forgotten people? in a place like Lone Fur, where some of Portland's most prominent residents are also buried?
2: Yeah, great question. Um, you know, it's important to understand and honor the stories of the people buried at Block 14, I believe, because without this, our understanding of not just the past, our past, but also our shared present and ourselves is incomplete, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so... You know, today I think it's pretty clear that the famous figures that have traditionally been revered in local history are predominantly white men, and their notoriety is in large part a reflection of their privilege and status as colonizers, frankly. Yeah. And in truth, I'm speaking of some of my very own people. Um, you know, I, my family, or a portion of it, has been in Portland for a very long time. Um, But, you know, these same men, while they did some important things for the development of our modern city, were far from the first place or first people to know this place or any place in the Americas. So, you know, I think just as it's really important in any context that we increasingly acknowledge that the homeland, um, that we really live on the homeland of many traditional bands and tribes of indigenous first peoples, we really need to acknowledge and account for the fact that our traditional histories are wholly incomplete without honoring, you know, folks such as those buried at Block 14. Right. Absolutely. Immigrants who contributed to the development of our society and um, folks who may have been institutionalized for a variety of reasons. Right. Far beyond mental illness and who contributed greatly to this city as well.
1: So when, uh, when do you anticipate the project being finished? Great question. So at this point we expect
2: to begin construction in 2025. And, um, so that feels like a long time. Um, and I know it feels like a long time for folks, particularly who have been following this project for many years already, um, I would say that um, it's going to go by fast.
0: Hmm.
2: And clearly, this is a sensitive cultural and archaeological site, so we have to proceed with great care. Um, yeah, in addition, one fun fact, Loan Fur Historic Cemetery is on the National Register of Historic Places. Okay. Um, yeah, which is kind of cool. Um, mm-hmm. But what it also means is that it's subject to additional requirements when a development project like this is proposed. Extra so bureaucracy.
1: You bet. You <laughs> bet. <laughs> so, if I wanted to go see Block 14 now, as it as it is before the memorial, where is it in the cemetery? So, Block 14 is essentially the southwest
2: corner of the cemetery um so Bonefirst cemetery is located between southeast 21st and 26th avenues or streets um, and morrison and stark Mm -hmm. so this is essentially the corner of southeast 21st and morrison and there's a pedestrian entrance on southeast morrison but you can also enter into the cemetery from southeast 26th
1: Okay, well, um, I'm gonna go check it out. I have been in that cemetery more times than I can count, and I honestly did not know about Block 14. So thank you so much for bringing this to our attention. You're so welcome.
2: Yeah, I hope you get there. It's, I mean, as you know, Lone Fur is such a gem, and Block 14 is a really important part of it. So yeah, thanks,
0: Julia.
1: Thanks for chatting, and thanks for your support. Absolutely, Nicole Lewis, thank you for coming on the show this morning. Thanks. Take care. You too. Have a great day. That was Nicole Lewis of Metro Portland talking about. Uh, she's the project manager for Block 14 Memorial and Cultural Heritage Gardens.
0: Thanks to Nicole for joining the local, and thank you for listening to the local, your hometown in just about thirty minutes. And thank you, democracy. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Extra. 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 extra.